Thank you so much for this opportunity to address these wonderful students at this wonderful law school. Uh, I mean, you really look good. I mean, I see you all dressed up. And, uh, when I was at Michigan, I was in law school some 40 some years ago. We, we never dressed up like this, even on interviews. Uh, but uh, it, it really is a, an, an honor. And it's uh, very nice to see when I walk in. That's how old I am. One of your professors here, one of my law clerks, I, I called him by his first name. I said, Caleb, no, but Professor Jaffe uh, was, uh, is here. 20 years ago, he uh, clerked for me, and uh, it was a great experience. And uh, I see that he's continuing to give back to a great profession that we have and in you. You know, uh, when William Cook, he uh, was a great benefactor of the University of Michigan Law School, and uh, and he left a sizable amount of money in the 1920s, unbelievable amount of money. As a matter of fact, our beautiful law school quadrangle is due in large measure to his single donation. But this is what he said, just a little squib of his will, why he did it. Michigan was his alma mater, but it was bigger than that. And what he said, he said something to this part, he says that, he said, American institutions are more consequence than his wealth or power. He said, and these institutions, their preservation and their development has largely been because of the legal profession. And they will continue to be so for that preservation. And he said, because our legal profession are responsible for those institutions, their preservation and development, he gave to a law school that would train them. And that's so true. A hundred years later, our institutions, American institutions, and that's why the diversity of those, that our profession is so important on many levels of diversity, racial, ethnicity, gender, all types of orientation, whatever it might be in terms of the beautiful wonderful, diverse America we have uh, should be represented in this, in this profession. So I um, salute you, Balsa. I remember when I was in Balsa at, at Michigan, we uh, took a trip at our national convention, was in Chicago, and we all loaded up as many people could, could legally get into a, a personal vehicle and, uh, and went up there, and I was just so inspired by it. So. Let me tell you this, you're in law school and it's rigorous and it's supposed to be rigorous because you will be handling the institutions, the individuals, and they will come before you, whether, you, whether you're a transactional lawyer or a litigator like I was. Uh, it's so important. And I don't want you to squander any moment of it, any moment of it. Um, I'm a very modest person, but if you allow me one, one little bit of immodesty, which is rare for me, is that one of the awards that you said I have, and it's, it's a list of them, but this weekend I just got back from New Orleans. No, it wasn't just because it's Mardi Gras season and I was in New Orleans. Of course, that was nice, Todd Father, too. But I received the American Bar Association, one of their highest awards, is the Spirit of Excellence Award uh, on Saturday, and that was just so uh, moving. And, and talk about your contributions to diversity in our profession. And for the, the bar to honor me that way, uh, I consider it to be a great and high honor. You know, I've been toiling in this profession for 45 years, 
one I have treasured and uh, one that I will uh, always try my best to be loyal to. When I say loyal, loyal to the hard work that's being that's required. And as chief judge, I'm almost finished. I'm, I'm counting now. <laughs> I got about four months left as chief. It's a seven-year term, and my uh, my successor will be Judge Diaz, who will do a wonderful job from North Carolina. But I told him I'm still counting the time. As a matter of fact, I would say that I wouldn't take a million dollars for the experience of being chief, but I wouldn't do it again for two million. <laughs> uh, uh, but no, my wonderful colleagues help uh, a lot in that regard. And one thing I just want to say about your theme, and I'm just a little bit about it because I'm going to be interviewed, so I don't want to take a lot of time uh, because you'll get into the personal things and some of the questions. But judging in a partisan era, now, it's interesting. You know, we are the only judicial officers, we are the only federal officers that take an oath that we will be impartial. If you look at the president's oath, congressperson's oath, and all that, it talks about defending the Constitution. All, but we're the, we're the only one that says, and you swear to be impartial. Those were the guidelines that were meant to keep us inside of what our job is. So the partisan part of it, well, the environment is such that, I would say this, the biggest difference is that now, almost every time you hear an opinion was given by the court, the next word is appointed by whether it's a Democrat or a Republican. And it, 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 it makes the, and rightfully so, I mean, I think with, with great responsibility comes great accountability. The public says, oh, that judge was appointed by President X and Y and Z. You would think, based on my introduction, that I would be the, the least vulnerable to that because I can say, wait a minute, I was appointed by a Democrat and a Republican uh, to no avail. Because they almost, 90% of the time, they always say, I'm a Clinton appointee because it fits with the narrative. Almost always. Oh, he's a Clinton appointee. That's true. But hardly ever will it say, I'm a George W. Bush, President George W. Bush appointee. But that's, that, that's neither here nor there. That's, it doesn't matter. But, I, but the reason is, is that it causes an increase in skepticism by the public. Are we doing it because based on who, who the president is? Well, there are a lot of things that are different. And it doesn't, if you look at history, it doesn't. And who, for example, who knows, who appointed Justice Earl Warren who wrote Brown v. Board? Yes, I think you volunteered, didn't you? You're looking right at me, don't you? Look, you're looking right at me. Who appointed him? Well, it's good that you don't. I wish you were more what the public is in. All right, Mr. Joseph, who, who appointed Earl Warren? Oh, oh, I forgot. You're right. Should I take points? No, should I take points off because his eyes said, I'm guessing? Yes, it was Eisenhower. And 
Earl Warren was former governor of California. He was a conservative Republican. But on the court, he wrote one probably, maybe the top 10 all-time Supreme Court opinions. Yeah, not only did he write it, he made sure personally that it was a unanimous decision because he knew they could not come out fractured when he said that separate but equal has no place in education he knew they could not speak with a forked voice in his personality i mean so hugo black from alabama former senator one of very liberal president i mean uh, justice uh, so, so the point, if, if you go back in history, this, this era, but because now it's a little more vocal, it's a little more, I don't know what you'd call it, what it is, but uh, it does make it more difficult, but it doesn't matter to me. Because I knew when I became a judge that this is not a popularity contest. On our best days, we please half of the people. That's your best day. And the worst, you please no one. But that's not what it's about. It's about whether or not what is required under the law. Uh, I, one of my favorite lines of, uh, if you haven't read this play, I really suggest that you do it. And if you want to take the shortcut, you can see the movie. But it is a wonderful movie, a great play called A Man for All Seasons. Sir Thomas More. It is Awesome. Uh, played by Paul Schofield, who is a wonderful actor. But, but there's a line in there where he's been on trial because he was refused to give his consent or blessing to the divorce of King Henry VIII. So he's ultimately put on trial, in a sense, for being against the king. And innocent, of course. But he says one line, he was talking about trying to get him. Because what he did was he was silent. He didn't say he condemned the divorce. He just would not give his blessing to it. And he was brilliant. He just said, well, what? He said, doesn't silence normally, silence means consent? If I accuse you of a heinous crime and you are silent, is not the presumption that you did it? How so it be different now with me that I speak not? And what he said was, he said that the world construes by his wits, but the court must construe by the law. So, I take the wits. That's what we have. You have a right to express yourself, to disagree with my opinions. That's your wit. That's your right. And that's what our Constitution is about. But I must construe as to the law. And that is the only client that I have. And responsibility is to the law. If I'm looking around to see who may or may not. Let me tell you something. I have gotten letters. I'm not going to tell you what case it is because I... That's not important. But it was a very important case. But anyway, as all of them are. But I have received a letter, a missive, that the least offensive word in the letter was the N-word. You didn't get that? I said the least offensive word in the letter was the N-word. Now, what am I to do in terms of these times? Do I fold my little tent and go off? Or do I stay steady with the law and the Constitution? I choose the latter every day. 
And the moment you begin to look over your shoulder and care about that, as a matter of fact, even safety, I'm not, it's not bravado, it's just the way I live, in the sense that when I'm at work, I go to the store across the street and I go across to the bank and I do those things. I don't get have guards. You know why? Because I don't want to live such that the easiest way to get to me is at my home. See what I'm saying? I don't want to say that that's the easiest place to get to me because, no, you get to me. I'm right here at the courthouse. I come out every day because I don't want my family to be a target for me because they say I got to lurk around there. But that doesn't, it doesn't bother me. So in this in ear partisans type thing, yes, it makes the job a little more difficult, but not the most important, not the part that's important because the day I operate out of fear or favor is the day I should resign because I took an oath to be impartial. And if my fears overcome my faith in justice and my duty, then I should leave. Uh, Brian Stevenson, brilliant person, the Equal Justice Initiative down in Alabama, he says that justice is a constant struggle. But he said that the balance of that struggle does not turn on the fear and skepticism of those who doubt the power of justice. It turns on the spirit and hope of those who believe. I choose to believe, not to doubt. And I think that's what makes it different. And that's what powers me to go on in spite of the, whatever the letters are and that. And I always, I, always, I kind of chuckle when people say, Judge Gregory, I wrote you, I read your opinion. I really liked it. I've never carried away with that. I'm grateful. I said, bless you. Thank you. But then I was thinking, well, you know what? I've written a lot of opinions. I guess the rest of them you didn't like. <laughs> you know, you know, I chuckle. You know, but the point, is, the point is you can't be carried away with applause. Because if you are, you'll never be able to stand the pressure and the crush of criticism. Instead, you do it because that's your duty. And that's your obligation. Uh, so it, it's it, so and I just tick off some of the things that within the confines of my job, sometimes how the partisan aspect of it is. It is one is context, text and context. The text, new laws, new administrations come along, further and different things. New legislatures every two years, they have new laws. Therefore, that's partisan based how it comes about, but it affects because you have new laws to deal with in terms of interpretation. But that's nothing more than the menu changes. But your job is still on the plate. And you're not focused on who put it on the plate and why. You're just focused on what's on the plate. The other is context, administrative agencies, what we call deference. Now, you know, have you gotten it right? You know, Chevron, Skidmore. Well, they have some deference we have to give to administration deciding, interpreting the law. That interpretation changed based on policy. Again, that's a part of the job in a sense. The attorney general is in terms of immigration, what the policies, who is allowed, what the policies are, the torture, the convention against torture, holding, withholding uh, departure or uh, deportation or asylum. And only the attorney general can grant asylum. No matter what we say and rule, only the attorney general can grant us high. So that changes based on the executive in there. But those things, solicitor general, very powerful. And we know about, you've heard about, you know, some people call it the shadow or the 10th 
justice, weighing in on whether or not cert granted on certain things, they'll get permission. That changes based on administration. So that's all within the crucible of the job, but not in the sense of changing the structure and how it's done. Criminal law the same way, uh, federalizing more crimes, punishment. Well, again, that, that changes in a partisan, different changes, but it still is a matter of dealing with that. Nominations and confirmations, you go through what is your judicial philosophy. Uh, we know it was a proud moment. I have many proud moments, but one of them must say, last October, I went to Chicago to the Seventh Circuit to the investiture of my former law clerk on the Seventh Circuit of the Court of Appeals. That was awesome. Being on the Fourth Circuit and one of my former law clerks is now a Circuit Court of Appeals judge on the Seventh Circuit. Speaking at her investiture uh, was incredible. And then another federal judge who's down in Middle District of Florida, another who's in Western District of Virginia, and another teaching at one of the greatest law schools on earth and present. Did I mention? No, I didn't say that. Did you know, and uh, so the court makeup and philosophy. You know, what is the philosophy? People talk about that. You know, you hear that at the hearings. What is your judicial philosophy? Those kind of things. Well, philosophies change, so the makeup of the court changes. We have 15 members on our court. We only have 13 now because two vacancies are there, unfilled. So we're waiting to see who Congress or the Senate is going to will confirm to be on in those, those two spots. So the makeup changes. But it's like the river. Water passes by. How many cubic feet of water must pass by? You stood on the shore? Can think about this now. I love thinking about it. All this water passes by you, right? Cubic feet, millions, trillions, and leave, and never to be seen again. But the river remains. And that's how the court is. It's like the river. People come and go and pass by and all those things, but the river remains. And it's the river of justice in that that environment that I think is most exciting and in that. And and lastly, in bank arguments or en banc if you are French, you know, um uh but uh a little more frequent, I mean, and I recall that uh, uh, and you write different dissents. I must say I wrote quite a few dissents when I first got on the court. Professor uh, uh, can tell you that. And so that changes sometimes in terms of how you do your work, but not why. But not why. And uh, so that's all I'm going to say about your topic, which is very, uh, and if we get into the questions, we'll get, but... Uh, judging in a partisan era, uh, if you stay the course and keep your eyes on what is the prize, and that is justice, it does not materially change. Uh, the players may change, but the script is the same. It's the Constitution, and uh, it is the guideline, and uh, it is the purpose and the driving force. And with that, I'm going to stop here and let... My uh, persecutor, I mean, I mean the, the, the interviewer, uh, interviewer, and we can get into some Q&A too, probably, right? Yes. Okay. All right. Thank you. Um, but something you said towards the end about the river reminds me of a comment that you've made in the past regarding the difference between 
being committed to justice and being right or even knowing all the right answers. And I found that to be a very interesting distinction, being committed to justice as opposed to having the right answer, being completely convinced that one is right or even knowing any answer at all. And I wonder if you want to uh, amplify on the importance of being committed, especially when the answers aren't ready at hand. Oh, it's a great question. Um, you know, I always say that this, that uh, just like excellence or perfection is the enemy of good, sometimes certainty can be the enemy of truth. And what I mean by this, you know, I tell my colleagues sometimes, I said, I can't guarantee you that my opinion is right. The only thing I can guarantee you really when you're in dissent, or if I'm in dissent, is that one, I have a different view, and two, mine is back as best as I can with the rigor of interpreting the law or the statute in question. Those are the only things I can guarantee. My view is different but it is anchored in my interpretation and belief is what this statute, what this constitutional principle stands for. That's the only thing I can guarantee. But I'm not arrogant enough to say, I know I'm right and I know you're wrong. It doesn't give me the right to point a finger or to state some absolute, because think, there would be no human progress if there were absolutes. Do you know that there's a space on this place called the moon if you fix these things? No, we don't know. Well, people believe that the challenge is there and the hope and expectation of the human race lies on the other side of that projection. And in, in 1969, they were right. The moon is there to be landed <laughs> on. And it's the same thing with, with law in terms of that. And so many people come before you uh, with and without portfolio and uh, and to me, whether you're documented or undocumented, whether you've been a citizen for 50 years or whether you've been a citizen for five days or not at all, the Constitution and rights and protections are there. So the certainty is in the work. Mm. It is in the rigor and the commitment only. But in terms of that, because, you know, think about it. I, I suppose Roger, uh, Roger's name was Roger, too. Justice Tony probably in 1857 thought he was right in Dred Scott. Can you believe that? But I don't think he dev, in my view, in the commitment to justice. And uh, let me tell you something, a lot of people don't know this. I had to tell you this, I love history. Do you realize that in June, on June 26, 1857, Abraham Lincoln wrote a brilliant response to Dred Scott. It, I mean, a lot of people don't know that. June 26, 1857, brilliant. He made Tony look horrible in terms of his reasoning, why he come to the conclusion that blacks had no rights and all that, you know, you know, horrible, horrible, horrible. But the beauty of it is this. If you look at the threads of Lincoln's position against Tawney, it shows up six years later in the Gettysburg Address. So out of that crucible of the most horrible opinion, one of the most horrible ever written, Korematsu is way up there and some other ones too, I don't have to get into, 
But out of that was born a spirit of freedom and hope that the nation somehow was able to overcome in the Battle of Gettysburg. And even Lincoln talked about, if the Constitution is what you said is, Tony, is nothing more than an old wad to rot on a battlefield. Mm. And he connected with Gettysburg. So anyway, just, just the brilliance of it. So I, I love that in terms of, so don't worry about that when people don't understand that. Stay the course of what you believe the commitment to justice is. No matter how faint or distant that voice is, follow it. And don't be afraid. Always learn from your colleagues. Don't be arrogant. But again, and I'm gonna tell you this, I won't say who it was. <laughs> one time, one of my colleagues, one of my colleagues said, I was in dissent. Well, Roger, I'm so sorry you could not come with us this time. You would be with us. Maybe next time you will, something to that effect. And I waited very patiently and didn't say a word. And when he or she finished, I said, in the same care and compassionate voice, that's okay. I hope next time you will be on the right side. <laughs> that person never said that again to me because they realized I was not there for confirmation and the validity of him or her. I was do the job that I was swore before God and all assembled to do. My point is, sometimes you have to stand your ground and find ground. And even if you stand alone, let it be hallowed ground, hallowed in your commitment, but not necessarily in your But anyway, it's a long answer, but I love that opportunity to talk about you know, we talk about people's philosophy. When they talk about the hearings, they want you to say, well, I would rule that way and whatever, whatever. No, this is what my promise is, my sacred oath is to the job. Go ahead. A wise chief judge <laughs> has said that um, the purpose of standing on broad shoulders is not to be seen, but to see. Whose shoulders have you stood upon and what have they helped you to see? Oh, well, th there are many, but I must start with the, the, the anchor shoulder. You know, it's always like when the pyramid, they the one, I always say when they, when they line up like that, the one at the bottom is carrying all that weight. <laughs> my parents, uh, my parents, my parents uh, uh, had very little formal education. My father, his, his formal education stopped in the fifth grade. My mother's formal education started in the eighth grade. I was the first person in my family to graduate from high school, let alone college and then to, to law school. But they gave me so much faith in the idea of industry and that you could. And, and the thing about it, I was adopted. As a matter of fact, I was, my, my bio says, throws people off. I'm from Petersburg, spent all my time there except for a little part growing up. And there was, not growing up, but in existence, I was born in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Why I was born in Philadelphia, I have no idea. Um, but I was there, and my birth mother. Anybody ever seen the movie Antoine Fisher? Mm -hmm. You have. Remember the scene where he meets Viola Davis, his mom, that one time, and never, you know, that time. I, I lived that. I saw my birth mother one time for about two hours. Never saw her again. I don't know who my birth father was. But my point was this: going back to my shoulders. Mm -hmm. I was born with asthma. I had rickety legs, and Tell the truth, I'm still pigeon-toed. <laughs> but people, when you're a judge, people don't mention it as much as they used to. I don't know why. But anyway, and then I was in a fire, and God has taken away the memory of the pain, but I could still have scars on my shoulder where I could see the burns were. 
But I think about this. If you lined up 10 little babies in a, in a line and say to somebody, which one would you take? Mm. Ooh, they decided to take the one who had rickety legs, asthma, and scars from burns. They didn't know my DNA. They didn't know anything about my gene pool. They, and that's incredible. And I remember that. So when I see people come before the court without portfolio and the world has turned their back, they're dispossessed, they're disinherited, and nobody understands them, there is room for justice for them. My parents taught me that in their faith and their understanding. And so that anchors me. And then along the way, there's so many people there, people in the neighborhood and L. Douglas Wilder, my former law partner who taught me undergrad constitutional law and civil liberties. Uh, 10 years later, I would become his law partner after that class. I never thought of it. Broad shoulders and so many people. I'm like the turtle on a post. If you see a turtle on the post, you know someone put him there. <laughs> That's all. Didn't get there on the own. So, yeah, and another part of it is this. The grace of being hoisted on those wonderful shoulders is not so somebody can see, look at me, look at me. Hi, I'm Roger Gregory. Hi, you doing? I, no, it's for me to see from a different vantage point the horizon and tell other people what may lie there ahead. Last week, I talked to a young lawyer. He was an extern. So I extend my clerkships by giving externships to people who otherwise, sometimes law firms or other law firms, other judges wouldn't even look at. I let them come in, and he's doing a great job, and I was sitting there talking about my lessons as a lawyer. So I pass it on. So I've seen those things. And I want you to do that, too. You are the creme de la creme. And people may not mention it to you, but they're proud of you and they watch you, they do. So don't ever get jaded and think that's not true. People you never meet will say, you know, I saw this woman, she was in it, she was arguing her case, she had clients. Wow, I can, excuse me, I can do that. You'll never know, but know you carry yourself in that spirit. So that's, that's what I'm talking about. Um, a quote. The Constitution, construed in the light of well-established rules of legal interpretation, might be made consistent in its details with the noble purposes avowed in its preamble. Frederick Douglass, um, middle of the 19th century. Great, great person. You have remarked that rarely, if ever, have lawyers come before you relying upon or citing the preamble. And you have also noted that it is at the beginning of the preamble, that the establishment of justice comes first. Why is it crucial, even imperative, to begin our work as lawyers, especially lawyers seeking social change, uh, with heeding the call to establish justice? Well, you know, I, I think that uh, the, the framers uh, decided, rightly so, that the first purpose of government, if it's going to be this new experiment with the governed and, and what's different about our country that it's the people who gave the authority for government and so that the first mandate was to establish justice. Now I know why they don't cite anything because the Supreme Court says well, <laughs> the preamble is not a, a mandate that's such that you can rely upon for a precedent. Forget about that. It, it, it's, I don't mean to forget about a Supreme Court decision. I don't mean that. But I mean, the point is this, know when you argue your case as an advocate, it is important. 
because I, I love jury trial and, 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 and trying cases. I always let the jury know, no, this case is about justice. And if we can't leave, if we leave here with something left less than justice, then we have not carried our purpose. And how we do that? Not perfection, but it is the whole idea of listening to the evidence you hear there. And unless you are convinced beyond a reasonable doubt, every and each element, justice can't happen. So I think calling judges or bench trial or jurors or whomever to that noble purpose is important. You know, for example, I always tell my law clerks, you know, the, you know, the, the, uh, the uh, First Amendment, powerful, right? Guess what? If you say everything people agree with, you don't need the First Amendment. You'll get there on the way home. <laughs> the First Amendment for people who say things that people don't agree with. It's like my, uh, my like what uh, Governor Wilder taught in our class. He said the, the, that the, the ultimate definition of liberty and freedom is not to do what you want to do. The ultimate expression of freedom is not to do what otherwise seems to be required. Mm. That's the First Amendment. It's the right not to do what seems to be required. That is, I don't have to do that. Gotta do it. The flag case uh, in the Supreme Court, I think, I don't know, it was accidental. But when that case came out, it said that you don't have to uh, salute the flag. The opinion was issued on Flag Day to let them <laughs> know that no, the essence of patriotism and devotion to our Constitution is an opinion that says you have that right. That that's powerful. That is incredible and powerful. They're not saying I'm advocating people to do that, but the point is everybody has a different way. You have to obey the laws. You can <laughs> violence and all those things are terrible. You can't do those things, but you can speak at a voice that's different. And so that's what justice is, Dick And we know that, that our framers gave us a framework which we are blessed to have the ability to see now where we were blind mm. and do that which we didn't do. That's grace, to be able now to see where you were blind and correct it and do the things you did not do. So that, that's what makes, makes it so exciting. And, and there's room at the table for everybody, every, every, every uh, ounce and thing that we can do about crediting ability and people who are otherwise able, there's room for everyone. And if we don't do that, then I don't think we've done justice. You know. And lastly, I'll say this. Without diversity and the full involvement of everybody, you might sometimes give mercy, but you can't do justice. That's different. Justice without inclusion, even if you have the stumble on the right result, might not be justice because you haven't done which was required. So that's, that's greater. You might be merciful, but you can't be just. We hear a lot about, um, especially in uh, with hearings, we hear a lot about judicial temperament, the cultivation, the judicial temperament. I'm wondering, though, um, what kinds of temperaments should lawyers be cultivating? Or in their practice? In their practice, long before you get to the court. So yeah. are there habits of mind and practice that you would recommend for lawyers, especially at the beginning of, of their careers? Well, well, I tell you, a good habit is this, especially if you're going to do some litigation. Go to the clerk's office 
stop by there early and often. Let them know you and let them know you don't know everything and you welcome their help. Because I, I say it this way. In Richmond, the court clerk's office used to close at 4.45. I never understood why it was 4.45, not 4.30, not 5, 4.45. Here's the difference between arrogant lawyer and a lawyer who does what I said. About 4.35, listen, because I can walk six, three or four blocks up. Listen, I got to file something, I'll be right up. Don't worry, I got some work to do. Just knock on the door. That's why. The other one, arrogant, know everything, come there at 4.46, we're closed. <laughs> you get that, don't you? You know everything, I'm gonna leave you to your own devices. Next, in terms of the court, integrity, integrity, integrity. Don't ever let a client get you to compromise your integrity with the court. When you have a bond hearing, if you as an officer of the court have reason to believe your client is not going to show up or continue to violate the law, you cannot represent to the court this person is not dangerous or this person has no risk of them absconding. That's unethical. Unethical. So integrity, honesty, and being on time and working hard. And, uh, and, and I think that, that, is, that is the key. Temperament, you have to be respectful. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you a real quick, real, just real quick story to that, real quick. I had a case, my client was charged with an offense, uh, a victim offense, personal victim offense. And I had the, a victim on the stand cross-examining the person. And after my cross-examination, it was clear that I had accomplished my objective, and that is the person was confused and it was a doubt about their accuracy in terms of identification, all those kind of things. You know what the judge did? The judge in the middle of the finish, he said, uh, Mr. Greg, I think, I think she may be confused. And once you start all over, master, I said, what? I said, I'm not gonna start all over. And quite frankly, you can't make me all over. I will not. Now, that's what I mean you have to balance temperament with obligation. Said it very respectfully. But that would be malpractice for me to start all over and let the witness rehabilitate us and my client, <laughs> against my client. And, and I just said very I said, well, Judge, I have no questions. I'm finished. And if you ask questions, which you could, I have a continuing objection to all your questions. But I don't want to disturb it because before the record, I continue and you sit down. You see, it's a difference between being disrespectful and firm in your obligation to be an advocate for your client. And some younger lawyers, and lawyers that are afraid may say, okay, judge, I'll start all over. Malpractice. Your client goes to prison because of you. You. And so that balance, but always respectful for the court, absolutely. Because one thing, it doesn't help you at all. The way in your case, and jurors don't like it. The judge is someone they respect the, they respect the most in the courtroom. No, you can't do that. So, so uh, that, that's important. It's important to always be respectful. But understand, too, what your... And the last thing I say is this. If anybody knows your case better than you, it's likely you're going to lose. 
I always made it. I kept it close to the vest and that the prosecution never knew exactly what my defense it was going to be and how exactly it was going to work out. Yeah, or even whether or not my client was going to testify. Yeah, yeah, but so I, I laugh at some of these lawyers now. They make all this money and they get on the television. And I always wonder, are you advocating for your next case or your client? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, did I say that? <laughs> I, I never did that. I, I litigated my cases in the courtroom. You know, they, they were not, they, they were, my clients were not fodder for my next case or commercial. I'm not criticizing anybody. I'm just saying these are the kind of things I think good lawyering is made up of. And the ones that I, you know, win or lose, let it be buried always in hallowed ground. Yeah, go ahead. How important or is it important to assume and extend good faith to your adversaries oh. in relationship to... And how important is that, assuming that it is important to assume good faith on the part of your adversaries, is that important in the advocacy of your client? Oh, yes, it is. First of all, you already have a, first of all, this, I always assumed that my, my dear colleague on the other side was very capable. The moment you think that you're smart and this person, you can easily do it, you're going to probably lose. I assume they're smart, and that's why I always start with, what is the best argument that I would make if I was on her side? I start with that. Uh, so, but I always assume good faith, and that is, that is uh, of course, the air is changing. When I practice law, we could settle cases over the telephone. If someone called me, I did a lot of defense work in terms of insurance, defense work, products liability, and those kind of things. That I always defend the civil stuff. But when I said, look, we're going to settle this case for... $50,000 or whatever, that's all we had to say. It was done. And the order would come. Now, if you don't get it in writing, sometimes people show up at the court and say, mm, I don't know where she is or he is. We don't have anything in writing. What? What do you mean? <laughs> no, that was unheard of. And the bar would just run you out of town. It's just not the way you practice. Mm-hmm. You know, so, uh, so I always do it. Now, I don't know what the environment is now, but the way you do it is this. Don't be angry. Get things in writing there. If that's, the, if that's the environment, say that. But you know what? I'm going to shoot this email to you right now confirming what we said. If you don't mind, if you just, just hit me back real quick and just say you confirm. So you can do it in a pleasant way without saying, well, I don't trust you. I got to have it in writing. See, so there's a gentle way to morph into what the environment mm-hmm. is now, but there's a mean way. But and another thing, too, never gloat in front of your client. Like when I settle a case, for example, I was at, I'm doing an insurance defense case, and I had authority for hundred thousand dollars, but they settled for twenty five thousand. You never let your let the other side know that you had more money ever. You always say something like, "Oh, you got me this time. Man, you got more money." I tell you, they ain't want to get that kind of money to you, but you did a good job, right? Because if you <laughs> you left seventy five thousand dollars on the table, one they're gonna remember that. See, that's where integrity in terms of that, that's the kind of thing. You got to look at the broader sense. Some, sometimes lawyers can only, they're so myopic. They only see themselves this, about this far from their nose. But I always look way down the line. Who's got to come behind me? Who's got to, so that's that kind of thing. And, and, and uh, so those are the kind of things I think about makes a good practice 
and I love. I didn't want to be a judge at all. <laughs> I, I, matter of fact, when it, when the thing when, it, when the offer came to even consider it, I said no. I took a trip to India uh, with the Christian Children's Fund and uh, forgot all about it and came back. And then my partner, he was then the gov- former governor then, I guess. No, no, he was yeah former governor. But he said, "This is important, Rod. You ought to consider it." And then you know the senators and Senator Rob and then with President Clinton that. So my point is that I wasn't like, this is something I want to do. And nothing wrong with that. If that's your ambition, go for it. But I'm just saying mine was different because I love practicing law so much. You have led me to the last question I'm going to ask and then open it up. Oh, sure. Um, which is the, the, the lawyers and certainly all of the brilliant lawyers and the brilliant lawyers in the making in this room have a reputation for being type A, for being well-planned, for knowing what the next move is, don't make the next move until you know the next move. But what role should lawyers allow for serendipity in the advancement of their careers? The thing that they didn't expect to happen, like for instance, you, you love your practice, you love being a lawyer, here comes another opportunity you could have said notwithstanding, right? This is what I, I love to do, but you were open to it, right? right? And, I, and I often wonder, especially given the high achievement brilliance of our students, that like, there's the path that one is supposed to continue to follow. And then there are many paths that you might not see or pay proper attention to, which could lead to other opportunities and way more possibilities in terms of helping others, serving others. Um, But if you're not open to the thing that you didn't expect, you may miss out on something that is just as bountiful or even maybe even more bountiful than what you had in mind for yourself. Mm. Well, that's a, that's a good question. And, um, uh, and it comes to mind that when I was at, uh, at, at Michigan Law School, when I went there, and I'm glad you're not like this. And I don't, I'm just telling you, it's me. I'm telling you, telling you me, that don't do what I did. When I went to law school, my whole thing was I wanted to be a lawyer. I mean, I mean it really was, you know, uh, teacher's assistant, law review, things like that, it just wasn't, it wasn't what I wanted. And it was silly on steroids, (laughs) but I wanted to be a lawyer. I'm telling you this because don't do that, but you need to do things like that. But what I did do though, I went to all of my classes. Everyone, I never skipped a class because I loved it because I knew that the professors had something that I wanted and I would, I needed. So I had people like, for example, I mean, like Yale Kamazov for, mm-hmm. for crim, criminal law. Oh, my goodness. Awesome. And people like that. And, and then, uh, you know, I had, you know, Summers and White, they made it still use it for Comtrans. J.J. White was my Comtrans professor. And, and, and my, I have to say this. He was my contracts professor, too. Keep going. You did? <laughs> and, 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 and then for tax, I had L. Hartwright, who was the principal mm-hmm. drafter of the 1950 revenue, Internal Revenue Code. I had no idea I had any interest in tax, but I was so struck by his classes in that that I became a tax lawyer. So when I, when I graduated <laughs> from Michigan Law School, I went to a, a large firm in Detroit as a tax lawyer. That shows you so much serendipity on steroids. <laughs> but but you know, but he I want to pass this on to you. I'm gonna pass it on to you. Yeah, you can take it if you want, but this is a great nugget and it held me in good stead all of my practice. 
And this is what he said. He was from Oklahoma, so he had that southwestern twang. He said, well, you know, this about, he was talking about exams, but I knew right away it had more implications than exams. He said, when you get an exam question, just don't read the question and start writing. He said, instead, do this. Read the question very carefully, then sit back, take a deep breath, and say to yourself, facts, what should I do? He said, because it's always the facts that tell you what to do. Oh, that was like a light bulb in my head. And, I, and I, I've always used that. A lot of lawyers, I'm talking all about an A personality. Uh -huh. We always want to impose our will on something. Not in the negative, not because we're mean, but that's how A types are. I know what this is. I'm going to figure it out myself. <laughs> See, I love geometry. So it's like this. The force goes from you down to the paper because you're going to impose your will on it. Wrong. The force must come from down up. Let the facts rise to you and let it tell you what to do. Because, like, I would sometime when I was practicing law, I would look at an exhibit for like 15 minutes, a photograph. And I would say to myself, what's in this photograph that can help me? Most lawyers look at it and say, oh, this is a photograph of the crime scene. Okay, <laughs> the jury will be able to see what the crime scene looked like. No, the photograph has a story to tell. And the question is, are you receptive to his message? Because when you are, then you can take the law and apply it. But you can know a whole lot of law, but if you never see the facts, it doesn't make any difference. It makes no difference. So, so that, that's the kind of thing. So from that, I went to the big firm, and then, again, serendipity. Mm -hmm. uh, I won't name the client because you would know the client, but we're, <laughs> we're a regional, regional counsel to a client that had a recall. And the recall, everybody and their uncle were suing them. So there are a lot of cases. So I went to the products liability department and said, he, no, he said, Roger, would you like to work on a products liability case? So I went to my tax, always respectful. I went to the tax partner and said, do you mind if I go work with this, with the, your partner on this case? He said, yeah, go ahead. I never went back to tax. <laughs> and I went to Hutton, came, left Detroit, went to, came to Hutton Williams, Justice Powell's old firm, and I, Worked there, and I did products liability and all kind of cases with a lawyer named Lewis Booker, who was just awesome. So my, my point is, don't just dictate. Let it come to you. Let the road rise as the old Irish lesson, right? Let mm -hmm. the rise, rise mm -hmm. to meet you. The wind be at your back, and the rains fall softly on you. Mm -hmm. A beautiful mm -hmm. lesson. Let it fall softly on your fields. You don't know where you might be in terms of where your real stride is. And that led me to, you know, then leaving that. And you got to take a chance. And then, you know, I became a partner in Wilder and Gregory. I love that. And we had, did bond work and all kinds of things like that. And, but then when this opportunity, I decided to do the, the judgeship. And don't forget, President Clinton nominated me at the end of end of June, yeah, end of, well, kind of near the end of June 2000. And then I went without a hearing for six months. And then he recess appointed me. I got a call on Christmas night 2000. That was going to be recess appointed to the court. 
And I didn't know much about recess appointment, so I did a little research. Guess what? The first person recess appointed was John Rutledge. And he was not confirmed by the Senate, had a nervous breakdown, and wasn't heard from too much after that. My research wasn't going too well. <laughs> but I tell people, young people, don't stop at the first chapter. You got to read the whole book. Because when I kept on reading, I saw that I mentioned before. Earl Warren was recessed upon to the Supreme Court. Will Bill Brenton, Brenton, uh, Brennan recessed to court. Uh, so these wonderful luminaries, um, uh, Spotswood Robinson from Richmond was a recess appointee. Mm. All these incredible people. But the main thing is this, I had to give up my law practice. And a recess appointee, you're only there for until the end of the next Congress, about a year, I'll be gone. So you have to step out on faith because uh, at some point, you know, you're gonna be put to the test in that regard. Uh, and let it, you know, let, it, let it flow and that's gonna be some stuff. Show me a person who has never failed and I'll tell you a person who, I'll show you a person who's never succeeded. Mm. Yeah, because you look at some of the great people like, you know, these, these moguls in retail, two or three bankruptcies before they came known for the stores, you know, I don't need to name them for their stores, you wouldn't know them. There's some seasonal stores that you might know about because they, they dare to, to test the limit and test their mettle. Uh, but know this, you, the law is a wonderful profession. It's full of so many opportunities and, uh, and, 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 uh, and, and, and you will, uh, in spite of the times, you know, it's, and, uh, and even though you go through a lot of difficulties, uh, and, and it's been, the last 12 months has been difficult for me. You know, I lost my, my daughter, passed. Very sorry. I had, I had three daughters. I still have three daughters. Uh, two are with me and the other one, God decided to bring her closer to him. Uh, but uh, 40 years old, and but you get through that uh, because it's about life is about a lot of things, you know. Everything is not happy, and everything is uh, not the way you always want it to be. But if you stay in terms of the course, that your service is important. It's really what you do for others that really lasts. The rest of the stuff is temporal. What you build in the hearts of other people—that's what—that's what eternal things are. And you look back. It won't be because of how much money you make. And nothing wrong with making money. No, I'm not saying that. I'm not just chewing money. There's nothing wrong with you. Work hard and earn that. But I like, but I got law, law, I got what I love about former law clerks who work at some big firms making seven figures, but they're also working on death penalty cases. Pro bono. Yeah. They're also working on a lot of public interest things. So you can't pigeonhole, well, you're over there. Well, don't worry about that. You don't know my story. You know where my heart is. So don't pigeonhole yourself. Well, you know, you decided to go to the big firm. You know, you decided to do that. Yeah, I, I did, but you also don't know that I also decided that justice was still important, service was still important, and trying to make the world better and brighter for everybody was important and still is to me. So don't let people judge you. And last I say this is this about this question. In, <laughs> in the building I'm in right now, I was appointed years ago, a long, long, long time ago, I was appointed to represent a woman. And I went in there and I introduced myself and said, 
I'm appointed to represent you. I could see her face just fell. You know, she she was she she was a, a different race, and she saw me, and I could just see it. And without missing the beat, and it didn't matter that I went to University of Michigan Law School. Mm -hmm. It didn't matter what my accomplishments were. She was in the reality of what she saw, and what she believed, and what she had been taught. But here's what I want you to remember. Your assignment is always more important than someone's assessment. If you don't get that, you won't understand what it's about. Your assignment is always more important than other people's assessment. So without missing a beat, but anyway, long story short, it all went well, and she wrote me a beautiful letter. But if I had stopped at the level of what she knew and made that my, I could have turned around and said, excuse me, I don't have to have this. I can go back to my office and, right? But no, that wasn't the cause. So don't let people, what you receive ought not to be dictate what comes, what comes to you in anger ought not to dictate what comes from you. You get those prepositions. Again, all this stuff, you got a lot of homework when you get home. You see, because if you do, that thing that anything that somebody says, remember I told you about that letter I received at the, the least offensive word was the N-word? If I had received that and from me came that venom, then I would lose sight on my assignment. You see the point? And your assignment is more noble. Mm. It's much more noble. That's, that's what anchors you. Those are the kind of things, no matter what happens, whether it's good or bad or loss or gain or the embrace of a daughter and all those things that you get through it because you know that's not the end. That's not the purpose. That's not what purpose is. And, you know, and, and you're going to be disappointed sometimes and those things are going to happen, but what that those those things are linked. So, you know, it, it's been a, a, a long and winding road, but... At no moment did I ever lose sight of a view of God's grace. Mm. And, and, that's, and that's an opportunity to have another day to be better, to serve more, to love deeper, and to uh, really have an idea of... Uh, and and there, there's a chill climate we have, we live in. There's no question about it. Uh, and uh, Justice Marshall said it so well in his, one of his last addresses, I'm sort of paraphrasing what he said, but in um, his call, he called it, I dissent. But part of the last part of it, he talked about, uh, he was receiving the Liberty, the Liberty, Liberty Bell Award in Philadelphia. Can you imagine <laughs> all those years, Thurgood Marshall and all those cases he had, quarter of a century on the Supreme Court, Solicitor General, uh, just unbelievable arguments for the court. And he said something to the effect of, he said, in the chill climate that we live in, you know, we must go against the prevailing winds. He said, the prevailing, uh, the prevailing winds. And uh, we must dissent from apathy. We must dissent from indifference. We must dissent from hate, from fear, from mistrust. Uh, he says, he says that uh, about the government, uh, he said that, we must get to work and do the work that's necessary uh, to be done. Uh, he said that job belongs to us. He said that, uh, he said that the uh, legal system 
can, as he put it, he said, the legal system can open up doors and sometimes even knock down walls, but it cannot build bridges. Mm. That job belongs to me and you, and therefore we must continue uh, this strive. And he said, we can't reach that uh, and really attain freedom until we learn to appreciate what is different. And we get the courage, the muster the courage to understand uh, those, uh, what is fundamentally the, the same. And we need to take a chance, reach out, because justice is on the other side. Uh, and and those, those words are always staring to me uh, in, in that regard, saying we can't do it as Afro and white, rich, poor, educated, and illiterate. We have to do it together. And I think his words that he said over 30 years ago ring true today and into our profession. This is a noble profession. Um, and it's one that noble people are going to do it. And I would tell people, I'm not honest because I'm a lawyer. <laughs> Being a lawyer, when you pass the bar and graduate, that's not going to flip a switch. I said, I'm honest because I learned it from my parents' table. Uh-huh. Integrity and those kind of things. So always keep that intact and, uh, and, and, and enjoy a great, great, healthy career. And I wish you well. And when you come to the Fourth Circuit, I look forward. I'm, I must say this. I'm telling you. Oh, I can say this because I can say this because I can say this, period. <laughs> no, I can say this because no matter what the opinion is, because, because it's, it was last court, it was a court week. University of Virginia, your clinic that argued for us, the Cavaliers acquitted themselves well. And I said that in open court right in there. They were awesome. And, you know, and, uh, it's, and I tell young people, don't be afraid when you come to court. Some of the best arguments I've heard on the Fourth Circuit came from younger lawyers because they didn't presume anything. They were well prepared and ready and right on top of the law. So don't be intimidated by it. Don't be arrogant, but always listen very carefully. That, but, uh, and if no matter what happens, well, since COVID, we changed, but soon we're going to change that. But we come down, we're the only circuit, we come down and shake your hand and greet you and wish you well in that, which is a great, great, great thing on the court. So anyway, so that's it. Another round of applause for Judge Gregory.